If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go with me again to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 16. The story goes that a pastor was newly brought into his new church ministry. And there was a lot of excitement amongst the congregation at this new pastor being there. The candidating process had been thorough and complete, and a lot of people had met the man and his family, and they were very excited. And so he came and he preached with great vigor and enthusiasm, John 3.16. And the people were overwhelmed at his ability and the fact that God's gift and power was upon him. And he preached it with authority and with passion and emotion. And he just broke it all down and everybody was excited and it was a wonderful time. And the church was very excited about the prospect of what life would be like with this particular pastor. The next Sunday came and he got up in the pulpit and he announced his text and it was John 3.16 again. And he preached almost word for word the same sermon with the same amount of passion, the same amount of energy, the same amount of enthusiasm. And everybody thought, well, amen, he's good, he's gifted, we, we really enjoyed this, we've been challenged by it and maybe this was a bit of an anomaly and he's new and he's getting moved in, maybe he forgot to study something new that week. Came back the third week, John 3.16 again. And he preached the same sermon with almost the same gusto, and now people were getting concerned. And they wondered if they'd gotten a lemon. But nobody said anything. Fourth Sunday, wouldn't you know it, up he goes, John 3.16. And so by the time they endured the fourth sermon, somebody went to the deacons and said, somebody got to talk with him. And so the deacons all confined after his service, brought him into the office in the boardroom and said, Pastor, we love you, but like goodness sakes, man, four Sundays in a row, John 3.16, you've got to have another sermon. He said, i got all kinds of sermons. And when you all get John 3.16, we'll move on. And that was his answer. Now, for some of you, you might think, Pastor Steve has been stuck in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, for way too long. And you might be thinking, does he think we got to get it? Well, there's a little bit of that. The truth is, I just think this passage is so loaded that I don't want to miss it. And I often think that passages like this one, and there are a number of them in the Bible, that are there, we kind of know they're there, we read them. And everybody acknowledges their existence, but few people really take the time to dig in there and go, okay, now what is Paul saying, what does he mean, and what does that look like in the 21st century for us? So, 1 Timothy chapter 5, now the good news is I'm done after today of this passage. I told our music team, when I see about 10 after 12, wherever I'm at, I'm just going to go, and the rest you can read for yourselves, all right? Um, and then when I get back, Lord willing, we're going to look at the next part of 1 Timothy chapter 5. But I'd like to read verses 1 to 16 again to remind you again of what Paul says. As we look at a biblical social justice, what does it mean to have a social justice, a social conscience as a church, as Christians, where we fight the extreme. Some people are all about, well, we just got to give people the gospel, and what they mean ends up looking very much like what James talks about, where someone comes and says, I have need of bread, and you go, well, go away and I'll pray for you. Meanwhile, there's a loaf of bread on your counter you could have given someone. So some people look at biblical social justice, and they think, well, listen, we just give them the gospel, and you know, whether they starve to death, hopefully they'll know Jesus. Well, that's cold-hearted. And wrong. Others go to the other extreme where it's all about the social aspect and none about the spiritual. So they start soup kitchens and they start coat drives and they do all of these things, but nobody ever talks about Jesus. Nobody ever tells anybody that they need Jesus and they forget about a verse like Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus said, what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world but lose their soul? So they don't starve to death physically but they die eternally because they never know Jesus Christ. And I submit that both extremes are wrong and a misapplication of the gospel. So what is a biblical social justice when the church, us, acts like a real family? 
And I think that's all laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy, who was supposed to go and give this message to an entire church, the church at Ephesus. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. And last week, we really broke down the difference between rebuke and encourage. It doesn't mean you don't confront, but it does mean you don't rail. You're not disrespectful. You're not hard. Church should be the safest place in the world for anybody to be. He says, older women as mothers, sorry, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And we found out that in all purity is important that it's truly supposed to be a family here, a family dynamic. Then he jumps right in in verse 3, honor widows, and notice who are truly widows. That phrase comes up several times in verses 3 to 16. Who are truly widows, but, but verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Why? For this is pleasing in the sight of God. And we learned the difference last week that if you're a Christian, you can never make God love you more and you can never make God love you less. God loves you. It is regardless of your status or your stature, of your gender, of your social standing. When if you believe in Christ, he loves you. God is love. But you can please him and displease him how we obey him, how we trust him. And again, if you're parents here, you know that. You know you have this consistent love for your children, but they can please you and displease you. It would never change the degree of your love. So it is with God even better. So he says that uh, children or grandchildren that give a return to their parents, that pleases God. Then verse 5, she who is truly a widow left all alone, notice this, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Again, that's a difficult verse. How do you process that verse? Then he goes on to say, command these things as well, verse 7, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, notice these indicting words, he, has, he or she has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And last week we learned that even the pagan Gentiles, I gave you a quote last week from Aristotle, who said that children should starve before they'd ever let their parents starve. And so Paul's point is, even if the pagan Gentiles get it, shouldn't Christians get it? Okay? Then verse 9, he says, let a woman be widow, sorry, let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. And I would again challenge you to look at that particular set of requirements. Go back and look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the requirements for elders and deacons, and you will be shocked at how eerily similar those requirements are. But then he gets even more personal, verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation from having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So, Paul says, Timothy, listen, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. And then he wraps this whole section up. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church be not burdened, notice this, here's the qualifier, so that it, us collectively, may care for those who are truly widows. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. And again, you're seeing why I've taken so long with this passage. This is not an easy passage. There are several phrases, several admonitions in here where you are left to go, <clears throat> boy, Peter, you know, or Paul, it almost seems like you're not doing what you said to do in verses one and two. 
You, you don't, you know, where's the encouragement here? You're, you're saying people are worse than infidels. You're, you're saying people are straight after Satan. They've denied the faith. They, they're going along and they're idlers and they're gossips and you're, you're laying out a lot of requirements. And at, at a cursory read, you'd almost think that, okay, so the church is supposed to be nice to those who are the most disenfranchised element of society. But then you set up all these standards that you'd almost ask yourself, who would qualify? Who would you say is a widow that lives up to this so you'd help them? These are one of a thousand questions I've had. I can't tell you. If you talk to Steve or Daniel especially, because those guys often get to spend time with me throughout the week, I have wrestled with this. I have stared at this sometimes and literally have gone up to the window that's in my office, put my head against the window and looked out and went, Lord, help. Because it's a difficult passage. And so... Here's how we've broken it down thus far. We said in verses 1 and 2 that God tells the church to be a real family. So it's not just that we act like it. It's not just that we, we give platitudes and cla- cliches and we, we talk about being family, but that we are a real family. And so we do treat each other with love and respect and dignity, and it's safe to be here. And again, even when we are wrong, even when we fail, even when we screw up, even when we offend each other and, and step on each other by accident or even on purpose, there is a sense of a desperation that we're family. And again, let me just say, know the difference, church, between when we use the expression, that's a dysfunctional family versus a functional family. Because functional or dysfunctional is not the absence of trouble. So sometimes you'll hear about a family and they're going through struggles and maybe a son or daughter have strayed away or there's financial issues or a husband and wife are struggling in their marriage or maybe there's, there's a whole host of and you and you hear it and, and people around the coffee shop, and I love this, code, the code words we have as Christians, I have something to share with you in prayer and that's just code for I want to gossip, okay? Um, me and the boys get a good laugh because I think the other code language of church is often if we say bless his heart or bless her heart, as long as you say that, then you're allowed to say anything bad about the person as long as you suffix it or prefix it with bless his heart. So I've heard that many, bless his heart, he's ugly. What does that mean? What do you think? Because you said bless his heart, now it's okay? You know, I, in fact, I caught my own father because my mom and dad used to teach me about not criticizing people. And one day we were in Nova Scotia. I was at this uh, youth event and we were in this, in this uh, gym and these guys, this family that were there, they did everything without any socks or shoes. Like they, it was like deliverance. They, they, they lived and they just had the, and their feet Oh, and I don't do smells well, all right? And so I was complaining to my dad all week about these, this family and their feet. And dad was rebuked. You have to be loving and you have to be patient and all this stuff. So dad had to come pick me up on the last night and came into the gym. And, of course, we were all in there. And we get out. And I get in the van just as I hear my father saying to my mother, bless their hearts, their feet stink. And I was like, aha, see, dad, I was telling you. But he thought because he prefaced it with bless their hearts, somehow that wasn't cruel and unusual punishment. All right? So we do this as a church. Paul wants Timothy to see in his leadership in terms of not just appropriateness or example, but most importantly in terms of a relationship. A church should be where people are in relationship. And so even when we screw up, even when we disagree, the attitude of us shouldn't be, I've got something on you now and I can't wait to correct you. The attitude should be, no, you know what? I love you so much, I have to have you in my life. And I'll chase after you even if it gets awkward. And often, real families have awkward conversations. And that's the thing. See, what makes the difference between a functional family and a dysfunctional family is not the absence of problems. It's that in the face or presence of problems, you still function like a family. Then you're functional. So a functional church is not a church where everybody's perfect. We're just a church of stained glass saints. No, it's like a hospital where all kinds of sick people are gathered, but in the face of sickness, in the face of all these things, we still function as a family. Because once you've met Jesus, you've been changed. And that's not just something we say, that's reality. Then we learn, secondly, that God calls the church to be sure families act like the family. So that's what we looked at specifically last week. In other words, every church is made up of family. So we are supposed to be a family, but every family is made up of families. 
And that's the part of our passage where it says those that have widows that have children or grandchildren. And we learned that God calls us to protect and care for and love and respect and honor those that are hurting, those that are left alone, those that have been widowed or maybe abandoned and all the things. Again, I quote Aristotle who said, It should be thought in the matter of food, we should help our parents before all others, since we owe our nourishment to them. A man must starve before seeing his parents starve. And we walk through that together. Um, uh, Stanton Nofel said this, We should be willing to repay parents and grandparents. After all, they brought us into the world and also brought us up. They cared for us and provided for us and loved us and forgave us and educated us. They encourage us to walk, to eat, to talk, and expand in the broader world. Our parents sacrificed significantly for us. They were willing to be inconvenienced for us. They took care for us when we were sick and in need. Consequently, it is only proper that we do the same for them when they are in need. Now, again, last off last week, I did talk about, some of you may say, well, Pastor Steve, listen, that's all well and good in theory, and that's all great in the Shangri-La life you've been blessed with, but you don't know my parents or you don't know the fact that I am without parents, or you don't know what my mom was like, or you don't know what my dad was like, or I was raised in a one-parent home, or whatever it might be. And I am not meaning to demean that, nor am I meaning to give you an excuse for not being loving and kind. Because when you've met Jesus, you've been changed. All right? We've learned that. you, You see, no matter what your life story is, God used it to shape your circumstances. None of us has perfect parents. None of us has been perfect. It doesn't mean that we can't show the grace that God has shown us, even to others. And God may use you to show grace and mercy to maybe, earthly speaking, not so worthy parents as the first act of the gospel they ever see in living color. So I want you to make sure you you see that. And then finally, of course, in this particular thing, you learn that the gospel starts at home. You remember a few weeks ago when we had the baby dedication of the Mannings and the Hancocks and we challenged them that the Great Commission starts at home. Now this might mean that you have to take your parents into your home. Or it might mean that you'll be at least sure that they're cared for and that they are safe, that they get the love, prayer, and support they need. It may mean working with your other siblings or in some cases working with other families in the church to get advice or counsel. And I've lived this. My wife and I are actually walking through this as we care for and love and honor and respect both sets of our parents. And I've watched my wife have to do this as we pray. We have very been blessed with very healthy and loving parents, but they are getting up in age. And there has to be a time and a planning. And one thing I feel extremely blessed by is watching my wife and her sisters as they, there's without a doubt, they just know we're going to care for mom and dad. But I'm an only child, so I know this is my responsibility. And uh, in fact, I'm so grateful that God called me back to Newfoundland because I remember just a couple of years ago, my parents planned their funerals and my mother called me up as my mother is wont to do while she's driving uh, because then she's bored and then she remembers her son and so then she calls. Um, so she called me up to inform me that they had planned their funeral. And so I said, okay. And she said, well, I'm going to send you all the information. This is what you got to do and this is what you're going to I said, okay. And she said, oh, and by the way, we want to be married and buried in Newfoundland. They live in Nova Scotia. At the time, I was living in Prince Edward Island. I said, now, Mom, have you given that some thought? Oh, yes, but you're good for it. (laughs) And and you know what? At the end of the day, I got off the phone, and I said to Deb, I said, you know what? I am good for it because they deserve it. And if this is where they want to be buried. Now, I will tell you, I did have a conversation with my dad going, do you think you're closer to heaven buried in Newfoundland than you are buried in Nova Scotia? Like last time I checked, you're getting glory no matter what. But this is what he and mom want. They want to be buried in Newfoundland dirt or rock, and uh, we're going to make sure that happens, all right? So we just do that. Now, today, we're going to clue up with, number three, God calls the church to care for those in the family. So we are supposed to act like a family. We're supposed to function as families within the family. But then God calls the church to care for those that are in this greater family. You'll notice widows, All right, if you really take 1 to 16, verses 1 and 2 are very generic. So Paul dedicates, under the inspiration of God, 14 verses towards how the church is to think and care for and admonish and trust and love widows. I don't know if you know this, this was a shock to me, but the Bible talks about widows 
uh, 93 times in over 80 verses from Genesis to Revelation. It is a topic of discussion. In fact, also every time that the widows is there, almost every time the word orphan is there. If you want to, think about the widows of the Bible. I don't know if you realize this, but Ruth was a widow who God brought into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And you can read about her in Matthew chapter 1. Anna was a widow who was very famous in the Christmas narrative. She's that lady that was in the temple and and she was dedicated and she prayed night and day and she comes and she prays over baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph. There's a woman named Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. She was a widow. There's an unnamed widow who ministered to the great prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17, 8-24. Fascinating read. Jesus uses that same widow as an illustration in Luke 4 at the synagogue in Nazareth that almost gets him stoned. When he says to a bunch of Jewish people that should have known better, he says, a a Syrian widow was ministered to when there was lots of widows in Israel, but because of your legalism and because of your short-sightedness and because you played church and you weren't the church, others were being helped and not you. And they got so angry, they tried to stone him. Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead in Luke 7, 11, And it might shock you if you go through your Bible and take stock of all the resurrection miracles from Genesis to Revelation. Almost half of them are involving widows. Of all the resurrection miracles, almost half of them involve widows or widows' children. Jesus, in Luke 18, uses a widow as an illustration about prayer and persistence. He compliments and uses a widow once again in Luke 21, who gave all she had in the temple. You've heard this, right? The widow's might. You've heard that expression. But in Mark, we get a solemn warning from Christ. In Mark, Jesus says this, and and in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Notice this, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Paul shows concern for widows in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God talks very seriously in terms of widows and orphans all through the Old Testament. In Exodus 22, verse 22, God says, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's serious words from God. In Deuteronomy, Israel gives a whole system of care for widows and orphans. Joseph, or sorry, Job, pleads his innocence before God and his friends. In Job 31, he says, I, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless have not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father, and from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. Job pleads his innocence and pleads with his friends and even with God, trying to figure out why bad things were happening, saying, listen, I have been good to widows and the fatherless. David often speaks of widows in Psalm 68. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows, is God in his holy habitation. In Psalm 94, David describes how the world sees versus how God sees. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Notice this. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? 
He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nation, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. You see, David tells us about God's view in Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now again, listen to God charge the Israelites in the prophet of Isaiah. Chapter 1, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, notice this, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And folks, over and over and over Again, you will see this. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. And of course, many of you, if you grew up in church, you know James chapter 1, verse 21 or sorry, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Would, would that be said of us at Calvary? That we are aware. You see, the one thing about our culture is we all know that there are children in this city in need, but we try to hide them. Even our government does this. But do we know where the hurting children are in our city? Do we know where the hurting women are in our city? Do we pray for them? Do we look out for them? Are we aware of the people in our own church that are women that are hurting, children in our church that are hurting? Do we do this pure religion and undefiled before God the Father? Is this to visit orphans and widows? I visited Mona this last week, and she quoted this verse to me in meeting with her as she is an elderly lady who can't get out to church and loves this church and loves to be seen and cared for by the church. So one thing I wanted, I built all this case, and this was a lot of redundancy and a lot of scripture, but I want you to understand, this must be important. We have to give some serious thought and attention as a church in 21st century St. John's, Newfoundland. How do we do this? But do we, are we known for being a church who cares? Now, I, mean, I really mean that. I, I know that maybe amongst ourselves we would say that. I know we can find people who would say, that's a, but is the general consensus of the city of St. John's, that, that church up there on that hill that, that, that meets in that little Lego block, they're a caring church. They're a caring church. They understand their city. They know what's going on in their city. We live in a world, I agree, of social government. We're surrounded by single moms by divorced moms, by abandoned and abused women. We have a growing number of single ladies in our society. Are we praying for them? Are we taking care of them? Are we seeing how they are gifted and loved by God to be assets to us all here at the church and listening to this group of women? Let me get real personal. You see, it is easy to find good evangelical churches that speak about and talk about abortion that we rail on it and we say it's murder and all these things. And it's right to say these things, but let me ask this. Is this church a safe place for any woman to come to, even if she's had an abortion? Is this a safe place? I once wrote a letter to the editor in Charlottetown because abortion was a hot topic. And a lady, a young lady there, because she didn't have regular access to abortion, had taken a hanger and had prompted herself to have an abortion, actually, and ran herself into the corner of a desk. And so it was really in the, in the news in our city. And, of course, Christians were saying, no to abortion, no to abortion. So I wrote a letter, and here was the title of my letter. A question and an apology from a Christian. So I defended God's definition of life. Don't get me wrong. But I publicly apologized to the city of Charlottetown in saying, God help us that any woman in our city, though pregnant and hurt, would feel that she could not turn to a church in a time of her greatest weakness and felt that her only alternative was to physically hurt herself so she could find her value and purpose again. This is what this passage means. 
It's not just that we stand against stuff, but what are we for? Are we for the women of our city? We talk about right living and being holy, but what about biblical healing? What about the fact that there are no second-class citizens to God? There are no broken second-class people with God, that when you come to Christ, He heals We talk about following God's word and men and women following God's created order, but do we seek to follow that created order in a truly biblical and gospel way? Or are we just chauvinistic and seeking after some sort of Victorian chivalry instead of a true biblical ideology? Where men treat women with purity and integrity. Where our church is safe for men and women. Where each segment of society is not only welcomed, but wanted and valued. We Are we prepared as a church to give and to sacrifice our time and people and money and facilities for those in our society who need help? And in our passage, it helps us understand who we are to fully support. That's where you've got to answer and understand these questions. Now, we've got to figure out how that translates in our culture. Because there are folks who will understand and pro, that, that, that do this. And so, what does it look like? So, what I'm asking is, we not, might not live in a culture in a, where we have such a social government where we're going to have a whole bunch of women that need us as a church to physically make sure they can live. Because we are blessed to live in a country that offers a lot of programming. But do we have men and women who will understand the programs and departments that are available? I was very blessed by the pastor of the Pentecostal Church in Stephenville. I got a phone call a few weeks ago, actually a few months ago now, from this young couple. She's pregnant. She has MS. They're in from Stephenville. They're staying at the memorial during the summer because she had to have a series of tests at the health science. They're out of money. They have no way back to Stephenville. So I, they call me, and of course, I wish I could tell you that we don't live in a society that doesn't take advantage of churches. We do. And God help me, so often you get phone calls, and the first thing you think is, am I being scammed? And you want to protect the Lord's money and the people that give it. But I've really asked the Lord to help me just be loving and to assume the best and let Him govern the worst. Because honestly, if they're scamming the church, don't you think God's a much better judge of that than you and I are CIA of it? So I just err on the side of generosity. But they knew that they were in problems, so I did ask about it, and I asked if they had family, and she said, I do have family, but there's a lot of story there. So I wanted to know how I could help them, and I wanted to make sure, and they were just looking for bus tickets back to Stephenville. Well, two things that God did for me, divine appointments. One, I called the bus company, and I wanted to make sure that if I purchased these tickets, that they actually showed up and got them. And I wanted to know, too, in due diligence, that they couldn't just pick up the tickets and then refund them for the money and, and just use the money any way they wanted. And wouldn't you know, when I called the ticket agent, and I'm trying to describe what I'm looking for, and I said, please don't think this is weird. And she said, you must be a pastor. And I said, well, actually, I am. And she said, you know, I go to Elam, Pentecostal Church, and I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know what, Pastor, we can really help you out here. And she, she was born again, and she loved the Lord Jesus, and so she really worked with me. But I, she put me on to the Pentecostal pastor in Stephenville, so I called him because I wanted to know if there was a way that I could connect them into long-term help. And when I talked with him, he said, you know, Stephen, listen, let me give you a number to the Department of Social Services. Because the way our government works here, if you are in need and you are not already on the list and you're just you're facing an emergency, here's a number you can call and they will, for all, within reason for almost anything, help you at the, first, at the first drop of a hat. And then they get you in the system and then it gets a little bit more convoluted and bureaucratic. But here, I didn't know that. It was so nice. And I have used that number multiple times over the last half a year, helping people get connected to the kind of help they need. And so are we going to have people in our church that will understand the programs and the departments that are available in our government structure where we know what we can do and how we can do it? Let me ask this. Are there foster families in our church? Those who are willing to step into the gap in the emergencies or folks who can offer a room, a meal, or a place to stay in an emergency? What about knowing where our shelters are and what they are best equipped to do? What about knowing where there are hostels or being aware of cheap bus tickets, as I was just telling you about, or cheap hotels or folks that can offer rides or offer to bring food or offer to simply help? Will we be a church like this? Now, Paul says what we are looking for, but I want you to notice a couple things in verses 5 and 6. He says, she who is truly a widow left all alone, and then he puts this requirement has set her hope on God, continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she was self-indulgent as dead even while she lives. Now, you might read that and go, all right, well, listen. If Mother Teresa calls me up and asks for help, then we give her help. 
But anybody else, we say, thanks, but no thanks. Read 1 Timothy 5 and 6. All right? Well, that doesn't make any sense because all in three times in verses 3 to 16, it says, she or those who are truly widows. And so we got to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean? Now, I want you to give you a little hermeneutical lesson as we bring the train in the station. When we interpret Scripture, I always want you to think about what's called, number one, the law of first mention. Where does it come up the first time in the Bible? Because often the first time it comes up in the Bible is a very important springboard as you weave it, as you draw the line through the Bible where it comes up again. And it helps you understand it. Secondly, Scripture never contradicts other Scripture. That's a golden rule. As you read your Bible, the Bible will never contradict itself. So if you read it and you come to a conclusion and say, well, this is what it means, but then you read somewhere else and the Bible disagrees with you, you're wrong, not the Bible. You are, okay? So we know we are called to help people, all kinds of people. We're told as a church to help those who deserve it and those who don't. You know about this. Jesus did this. Remember in Luke 17, the 10 lepers? He heals all 10. How many come back and thank him? Huh? Yeah, okay, the kids know. One. One out of ten, but he still helps them all. And what does Galatians tell us? Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, now notice, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, what Paul is talking about here in regards to truly widows are those who are part of the church family who we treat like verses 1 and 2 of the passage. In other words, these are women uh, that have been marginalized or hurt or in any way, but we have a trusted, committed relationship. So in other words, if someone in our church is needing consistent, regular physical support from our church, but they're not living a godly life, we have the ability to speak into their life, to come alongside them and point this out to them. Because there could be a reason that if they fixed or refocused their lives on the joys of Christ, it would help them spiritually and physically. The general person that calls us up, I don't have that relationship with them. I tell them about Jesus Christ. I tell them about their lives, but they don't know me. They're not inclined to listen to me, but someone I've done life with here in the church, I should be able to go and have that conversation with. We also have to balance that out. What did Solomon say in Proverbs 26, 4 and 5? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, was Solomon having a bad day that day and just got it wrong? Answer not a fool, answer a fool. No, what he's doing is saying, understand the type of fool you're dealing with. My father used to have these expressions, there are none so blind as those who don't want to see. And he always said, Steve, don't have this attitude of don't confuse me with the facts, I've already made up my mind. Jesus talked about it in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, don't throw your pearls before swine. So there are people that we're going to help just because they ask, just because they're in need. But there are other people that are going to ask for help, and they, you know they're taking advantage of you. They know, you know they're just looking for a meal ticket. You know they have no interest in Christ. They have no in- Paul says, Jesus says, the Bible says, at some point, you've got to give them over to the Lord. But there's going to be people in the family. I know this now much better as a father of two teenage or two adult sons, one about to leave his teen years, one who's about to get married. And there are times I want to do a V8 thing to the forehead of those two boys. And I love them. But sometimes they say really dumb things. But I still reason with them. And there are times, though, that when they're in the heat of battle, there are times that me and my son are talking, and I know my son's attitude is, you know what? Dad, I will argue with you here for the next five days, but I ain't changing my mind. And that's when a loving squeeze on my thigh from my wife, who says, I don't want to be here for four days arguing with him, re- makes me realize, Steve, you've you got to lose this battle to win the war. And so I learned not to answer a fool according to his folly. There are other times when I've engaged with my son who's done something wrong, and he comes to me and he says, Dad, I've screwed up and I need help. Oh, man, now i got all the time in the world for that. You can help that. But it doesn't mean I don't love each version of them any different, but each version is very different in how they need help. And so that's what Paul is telling us about here. I, I love this. 
What the Bible, Jesus, Paul is teaching us is that we help, but we also present the gospel as we help. We pray and teach and build relationships as we help. We see those who are being affected by the gospel and we see those who are not. And we then adjust accordingly. I love this. It says, one of the nicest compliments I've ever heard about Liabra was from a young architect who made a profession of faith at Liabra, a young architect from Zurich. He was saying goodbye one day, and I do not know if, he, if you know the Swiss. They often shake hands twice or three times when they say goodbye. Thus, when he came back the second time to shake my hand, I thought he was, the only, he was only following the Swiss custom. But he said, I want to tell you, every time I have been here, I feel like a human being. And we shook hands. I have never heard anything nicer than that in my whole life. So Calvary Baptist, as we look at 1 Timothy 5 and we wonder about how do we help those within our midst and how do we help those without, I don't care who you are, how old or young you are, what your story is, what your success rate is, how damaged you think you are, one thing I will say to you with the authority of God, every human being in this room, every human being that ever comes into this church, every human being we should ever interact with should always say this of us as Christians, never have I felt more like a human being when I was in their presence. I just felt loved and respected. We might not agree with them, but love and respect. And then finally, in two minutes, verses 9 to 16. So buckle up. God calls the church to have servants in the family. So really, just to sum this up for you again, I want you to understand that if there was, in Paul's first century application, Widows and orphans was a massive segment of society. In fact, at the conference that Jeff and I and Steve got to go to just a couple of weeks ago, we heard a guy by the name of Michael Kruger give a historical uh, uh, dissertation on why the first century was so loved by women. The first century church was so loved by women because it was a safe place to go where women were loved and respected and not marginalized and not pigeonholed and not stereotyped, but they were loved and respected. They were lifted up and used. And so what happens is, obviously, if you've got godly women getting coming to Christ, growing spiritually, it would make sense. Then you would then end up with a group of godly women who can help reach out and minister to up-and-coming godly women who are coming to Christ. And so Paul develops an order, a kind of the leader of these widows. So these widows who are truly widows indeed, who need kind of the full-time consistent support of the church, and they are godly examples. They are living that life. But you'll notice there's a couple of caveats. In verses 11 to 15, Paul seems to put a, pre- uh, sorry, 11 to 13, Paul seems to put a premium on both a promise and character. He says, let them be taken into a world who are 60 years of age and older. And the reason being in that century, if you were 60, you kind of had reached full maturity. That's what that meant. And you were likely not going to be interested in marriage. But the idea was these women, these widows who came on a roll had literally come to the leadership and said, listen, I am so grateful and thankful for the way this church cares for me. But not only that, I am now going to say marriage is not what God has called me to. And I'm making a promise and I'm making a commitment and a covenant with my church family that I will now be focused on other widows and I am now going to live. Basically, I'm marrying myself to the church. And and that promise is made. And that's important for us to take. Because remember, we... Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 36, again, have you heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black, unless I guess you dye it, Um, let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Paul is basically saying, look, if there's a group of women that you think are being called into this type of ministry, make sure they understand the gravity and the seriousness of saying, I am now full-time for Christ. But folks, think about it. Should that not be sober and serious for elders? I don't, I don't think you want an elder that's like, you know what, I think God's called me and I'd like to take a kick at the can for a while and see if this gig works out for me. Would you really want that type of a leader in your church? If I came to you and said, you know what, I kind of like this pastor gig, 
but I'm not really sure if I'm into it long term. I'll tell you what, you guys allow me to be full time for you, and if it works out great, if not, well, I'll move on to something else. Would you really be committed? Like, you know what? Steve's the kind of leader we should have in our church. No, every one of you would go, I, I don't even know if this guy's committed. And so that level of commitment needs to ripple its way through the entire body of Christ. James talks about this in James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him or her, it is sin. So Paul is saying, look, when you love on everybody, especially the women, the widows, the hurt, those that are here, and they come to you and say, you know what? I believe the Lord has has called me now to a greater commitment and service in the church. And the church says, we're going to take this woman on and we're going to make her one of the leading servants of our church. And she's going to look out for all these other ladies that she says, I will not have divided allegiances. And that's what that means. And that's why he says those that are younger point them to another way of living, which is the priority of marriage. And folks, I know it might not be culturally significant to say it, but in God's word, he puts a priority on getting married. He really does. If you're growing up, you should want to get married. That's a good thing. Don't be single just because of selfishness. Be single because God's called you to it. If God's called you to find a woman or to find a man and be in love and stop creating uh, standards that you know it's going to be impossible to meet. Stop looking for that perfect human being. My soulmate, don't believe in Hollywood's version of love. All right? You're a sinner who's going to find another sinner and two sinners are going to try and live together in marriage. And the only way you're going to live that out is to live under the grace of God. So we need to make sure we do that. So let me close with this. What's your view of church? I mean, I mean, really, what's your view of church? Is it a necessary tag on in your life if you want to have some community? Or is it the thing that gets you up in the morning? I have to tell you, the bigger my view of Christ gets, the more I fall in love with the church. I really do. I love coming here. I love being here when I've had the best of the weeks, and I love coming here when I've had the worst of the weeks. And the truth is, I love coming here more often when I've had the worst of weeks because this is where I find great healing and encouragement when I've been a class A screw-up. What's your view of church? Are you honestly reading your Bible and saying, Lord, you created me, you saved me, you have done a work for me, would you work in me today? I will read your word and trust you with what it says, seek to obey it, trust you because that is best for me and it gives you the most glory because that pleases you. Even when you come to hard passages like 1 Timothy 5. But here's the big idea. Will you look to God, our Father, and Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, as our example of how we should think, speak, act, live, and treat each other as a family? So, Paul is basically saying this, church. When families are seeking Jesus, then a church will seek Jesus. That's the one plus one equals two. So, how are you treating and thinking about each other? How are we operating in the family dynamic at home and how does that affect the way we act as a church? And practically, as you go out into the world this week, is there someone in our church who needs special care? And you won't just look around, but you'll initiate. Is there someone or a family or a group in our church that needs special care? You take note of the prayer requests in your bulletin or in the email blast. You listen to the Facebook posts or the tweets that come from the church and you go, Lord, I am being called to respond to this. Is there a segment in our city that needs us to take a special interest in it? So that we don't just say as a church, oh, we're a loving church. But we are practically initiating that we are a caring church. You see, here's my thing. I don't want a church, the same thing I've taught my boys. Let's not have small dog syndrome. Have you ever noticed that about dogs? The smaller the dog, the more it yelps. Why? Because it wants you to think it's a big dog. The one thing I've noticed about a lot of the big dogs is they sit there with that massive head and they just look at you and go, any day, buddy, I can eat you for lunch. And he has nothing to prove. And too often, churches 
have small dog syndrome. We talk about our love and we talk about this and we talk about that. When obviously, if we would just be quiet and go in love, it would be obvious. And why would you do all this? Because you have been loved by Jesus in ways you can't even explain or express. God bless you, church. Let's close in prayer and then sing our last song together. Father God, again, I pray, not with an expression that's original to me, but Lord, one that I've heard that I cling to, and that is that the people here will have heard a better sermon than I have preached. Lord, as I leave this province today by your good care and go down to Texas and meet with people and talk to churches about this city, this island, this church. Lord, as we seek your will in in expanding our facilities and seeing other churches planted, God, forgive me if my desire is just to kingdom build for me or for us or to make ourselves look good or to be able to write a book one day and say, look at how we accomplish things. Oh, Father God, forgive me and stop me cold in my tracks. But Lord, I pray that this church and every man and woman in it would join me in praying and saying, Father God, we want you to use us to love people, love each other, love you, serve each other, serve this city. Father, we are desperate for you to revive us and then awaken the city to the gospel. I pray that every man and woman that interacts with every man and woman in this room will know Man, they are different. I might not like them even. I might not agree with them. But I'll tell you this, they're different. They treat you with love and respect. Lord, I remember the words of Rosaria Butterfield, this woman who was acting in a lesbian lifestyle and she went to a pastor and her testimony is this, this man never once told me I was going to hell because I was a lesbian. Pastor always told me that I would end up in hell one day because I had rejected Christ. Lord, help us as a church to stop naming sins by category and just making sure we deal with sin itself, which is what makes us in need of a Savior. Help us to treat every person, no matter who they are, what color they are, what age they are, what background in life, whatever country they come from, whatever their socioeconomic standing is, that this is where they can come and have dignity and love and respect and care. And Father, where we just live out the gospel. Help us to start that in our own homes and help it to spread into this church. And so my God and my Savior, I pray that however your Holy Spirit has convicted and turned people towards you, that they would respond, not out of guilt or shame, but out of that heaven-sent rebuke and encouragement and instruction in the ways of righteousness that your word in 1 Timothy talks about and in 2 Timothy. So my God and my Savior, help us now to go and make this sermon a reality, starting inside this room and rippling out into our neighborhoods and our offices and our our families and extended families and classrooms. And we give this to you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.